Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hello, my babies out there in Metal Up Your Podcast land. Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. As of listening to this, I am currently in motherfucking Japan. So come along with me on a journey of songs inspired by that great land. And out I got to. All right, everybody, like I said at the top, this is an episode of Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. We are an all-Metallica podcast. Don't be fooled by the morals. But here's what's going on. I'm going to Japan. My wife has graduated after two and a half years of taking online courses to get her master's degree in HR. She's finally graduated, and uh, you know she got that done working a full-time job, raising a, a toddler, and uh, largely with me at big chunks of time being on the road. So to celebrate that uh, amazing accomplishment, we decided to go on a trip. We were going to do 10 days in Europe, uh, but she decided to go to Japan, which was a big bucket list of mine. I've never been over there. So we're super stoked. Now, what that means for Metal Every Podcast, obviously, is that there's not going to be any Metallica episode, but we don't like to just take full weeks off without anything. We like to at least do some Metal Tales or do some radio episodes. Now, the radio episodes are super fun for me, and I believe Ethan, too, because we get to explore different music together. Sometimes we do AMAs. You can ask us anything. We talk a lot about art and film culture and philosophy. Of course, we talk about Metallica and hard music. And uh, for this one, I did an AMA that's specifically just about films and film culture, because I'm a big movie nerd, like I know a lot of you are out there. And uh, we're also going to be listening to songs inspired by and about Japan. We've got Tom Waits. We've got the Bee Gees. Okay, we've got the Vapors, the Strokes, the Flaming Lips. We've got some Clint Wells music in there. Uh, it's going to be really fun listening to all these songs together. And I miss the days of having a an hour-long curated experience because 
one of the greatest uh, treasures of being a music lover is the discovery process. And I'm always looking for my new favorite song and a new song to add to the growing list of songs that are going to touch me and be with me forever, you know, and maybe this will be that hour for you. I encourage you to sit back and have fun. Enjoy the conversation. If you participated in the AMA, usually we do that on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook for Ethan, uh, then you're going to hear your name on this goddamn episode. And um, because we were not able to do the housekeeping last week with our James Hetfield interview, uh, I might be reading some uh, Metal Up Your Podcast emails as well, just checking in with the fam. And uh, with no further ado, let's get this party started with a song from the Strokes 2013 album, Come Down Machine, and it's called Welcome to Japan. How fitting, how nice, how lovely. i uh-huh. 
Well, there you have it. Welcome to Japan by The Strokes. 2013. Cool record. If you sort of thought you understood The Strokes from that, last night she said, you got to check them out because they did some pretty cool stuff later on. And uh, I love that lyric. Uh, I didn't want to notice. Didn't know the gun was loaded. Didn't really know this. What kind of asshole drives a Lotus? <clears throat> I had to Google the Lotus car. And now that I'm looking at it, it, it is some sort of douchebag who would drive this car. Sorry. <clears throat> Give me uh, $45 million and I might get one too, though. I would like to walk in that man's shoes, the man who drives the Lotus. See how it feels. Maybe it's kind of a no-brainer once you get up into that stratosphere. Anyway, that was fun. Love the Strokes. We're going to play some tunes like that and very different from that. I mean, like I said, there's some BG stuff on here, some Deep Purple. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, I wanted to ask a bunch of or have a bunch of questions asked to me about film culture because I love to talk about movies. And this was a great excuse to. So I'm going to bring that up here on the old Instagram. And we'll read a few and get some answers, have some conversations about films, and then we'll dip back into the tunage. Angelo Gonzalez says, Sleepaway Camp. Are you a Sleepaway Camp fan? Love the series. Uh, Sleepaway Camp, the first one, is just a masterpiece in, uh, uh, no pun intended, campy horror. And it's got a wonderful twist ending that I won't spoil for you now in case, for some reason, you've been living in a cave for the last 25 or 30 years. But you sort of think it's about this one thing, and then there's this really big, shocking ending that I rewatched Sleepaway Camp a couple of years ago, and it it still has that bite. Now, horror franchises did what they always do, and they made subsequent films because of the success of Sleepaway Camp, and they have diminishing returns. Very few match the, the true horror of the first one, and uh, that's just par for the course, though. I'll take more Sleepaway Camp films. They're fun. He also says, did you watch The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix? I thought it was really good. Would love your thoughts. Have fun in Japan. I hope you enjoy your time off. Thank you. My wife and I did watch that show together, and she really loved it, and I really did not like it. Um, I, you know, is that, let's see, The Haunting of Hill House. Let me make sure this is right. Because I believe it's based on the Shirley Manson novel, right? Um... And is Shirley Manson, am I even saying the right thing? Is it Shirley Manson? References. <sighs> Created and directed by Mike Flanagan for Netflix. The series loosely based on the 59 novel of the same name. Shirley Jackson. There we go. Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson wrote a, a really creepy short story called The Lottery. I'll just leave that there. You guys should all go read The Lottery. You can probably find it online. <clears throat> Shirley Manson's in the band Garbage. Um, so yeah, so this is based on the Shirley Jackson book, which I read when I was a kid and loved, and I do think they made a movie, uh, in the 60s or 70s that I think is actually pretty good, but, um, I did watch the show with my wife and I did not like it, and, um, I didn't even finish it. I didn't think it was that scary, um, I hate to sound like a jerk about it, I do, I do like that Carlo Gugino chick who sort of had a breakout horror hit with uh, Gerald's Game on Netflix, either this year or late last year, the Stephen King novel, that's just largely her chained to a bed for 90 minutes, and she is quite wonderful in that. Um, but The Haunting Hill House just didn't do it for me. Sorry. Uh, here's a question from KH Music Press. What's a critically acclaimed movie that you don't like? How about 
one that critics hated but you love? Uh, that's an excellent question. Of course, those I have a list of those. Um, I sort of infamously do not like uh, the Star Wars films. I did when I was a kid, but we all did. But revisiting them as an adult was pretty tough for me. Um, and the, any of the new ones, like I went and saw a couple of the new ones and fell asleep in the theater. Another movie that I just really didn't vibe with that's considered one of the greatest of all time is Citizen Kane, the big Orson Welles classic. I just didn't really understand it. And uh, maybe that one's going to take a few more watch as... Um, another Orson Welles movie I didn't really like was The Third Man, which is you know generally considered one of the best noir, noir films. Um, I did not like the movie Lincoln, <clears throat> which won an Oscar. Daniel Day-Lewis, of course. and um, I thought it was just super boring. Couldn't stand it. I did not really like Apocalypse Now, which is the Francis Coppola film that every you know his post godfather movie and brando and martin sheen and uh lastly a very famous science fiction movie that i did not like was blade runner love ridley scott love harrison ford love science fiction but i just thought blade runner was just a big old mess um and then the new one with ryan gosling i was excited because uh denis villeneuve or however you say his name directed it and He's directed some awesome movies, Enemy, uh, Incendies, Prisoner. Uh, he's I love his work. He did Sicario, just a wonderful filmmaker. So when I heard he was doing a big budget kind of retelling, a retake on Blade Runner, I was excited. Like maybe the this filmmaker who I identify with visually and, and through storytelling will help me understand Blade Runner. I made it maybe 40 minutes through that and just ended up just turning it off because... You guys know how it is as you get older and have more and more obligations. I just don't have the time to waste on shit I don't like. Now, movies that critics hated that I loved. Here's where we're going to start. We're going to start right here with a movie that I sincerely love. And that is Black Knight. Starring Martin Lawrence. In which he's a modern black man who... I don't even remember how this happens. He eats a radioactive sandwich or he steps on a... He's, I don't know how it happens, but he gets transported back into medieval times. And it's him, kind of modern-day Martin Lawrence with his sort of sassy, cheeky vibe, navigating his way through medieval times. And I'll tell you this. I have been on the road in my hotel room, like after a sound check and before the show. Been in my hotel room, and Black Knight will come on TV, like TNT or something. Something with commercials. And I will be so into it, and I've seen it before, to where, you know, it's time for me to go down and go get in the car that the runner's here and take me to the show so I can do my job. And I've seriously considered just quitting my job because I want to finish watching Black Knight. That's no joke. That's actually happened to me a couple of times. In fact, if I've got an obligation later and I see that Black Knight is on, I have to willfully not start watching it. Because it's just so fun and stupid. And based on what I've told you about it, can you imagine what the critics said about it? Good God. Just universally panned. Another movie that just the world hated that I submit to you is a wonderful movie, and that's Waterworld with Kevin Costner, in which, yes, in the opening scene, he uses a contraption to drink his own urine. 
and it was the budget was huge. It was like it was like the '90s Heaven's Gate, the dude who did the Deer Hunter, the Michael Comcino or whatever, cost a million dollars, and the movie flopped. And then everyone just sort of you know, Waterworld's like almost like the Nickelback of movies or something, even though Waterworld pound for pound is better than the band Nickelback. But I submit to you, it's a fun ride. Uh, Dennis Hopper is the villain. Wonderful. Kevin Costner, wonderful. A dystopian future where the world's covered in water and he's some sort of hybrid fish man. And they use dirt for currency and he's got to save the world from whatever whatever cabal Dennis Hopper's up to with his goddamn eye patch and the scar on his face. And then the re-engineering and the retelling of what how did the world get this way. Waterworld. Check it out. A great horror movie that critics did not like is a movie called The Cell with, surprisingly, a wonderful Jennifer Lopez and a surprisingly wonderful dramatic role by Mr. Vince Vaughn in which a serial killer has this woman trapped, but he's in a coma, and there's this new technology, and Jennifer Lopez plays a psychologist who goes into the mind of this guy to try to figure out where this lady's trapped. And inside of his mind is no joke. It's a very scary, scary, beautifully depicted um, netherworld of insanity. And I recommend that. Another great movie that got panned, I thought, was American Ultra uh, with Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, who I love to see in films together. What did they do? They did Adventureland. They did Woody Allen's Cafe Society. Uh, American Ultra, in which two stoners who live in a small town, find out that he's actually like an activated uh, like war guy. He's, he like gets activated by the government. They're conducting experiments on him, and he suddenly knows how to kill people, and he's like Bruce Lee all of a sudden. But mixed with sort of a stoner humor. And then the last movie I'll mention that critics did not like, which was really good, it just plopped on HBO last year or two years ago. Ben Affleck plays uh, an accountant. The movie's called The Accountant. And he's not actually an accountant, although he does do some accounting. He's also a badass stealth killer. And I understand. It sounds horrible. But I'm telling you, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's just pretty good. What can I say? Now, moving on to some tunes, I wanted to play one of my favorite songs by The Flaming Lips, a fucking awesome psychedelic rock band who you guys may remember from the 90s had that Tangerine song. But they made a record called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots in 2002. Had a big, huge hit on it uh, called Do You Realize? But this is the title track called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots Part 1. Enjoy. She 
Psychedelic robot ending. For those of you who don't know how this works, I listen to all these songs with you, so I'm kind of sitting here enjoying it with you, thinking about the lyrics, thinking about the tunes. Maybe you're driving, maybe you're at work, maybe you're painting your house. I don't know what you're doing. But I hope you're well out there. I'm going to read a few emails that we get. Metal up your podcast show at gmail.com so we can give a little love to our listeners who take the time. To write in and send us lovely messages, Angelo Gonzalez, who we read a question from earlier, he says, enjoy your time off. That's the subject. Hey, Clint and Ethan, just wanted to say I've really enjoyed the last few episodes. Today's especially. I read through the James interview before I listened to the episode and had a similar reaction to you. So much info to dig into and be grateful for. The amount of content we get from the boys is truly a blessing. I wanted to share a couple of thoughts I had about the Jason fanboy comments from James. So 
James mentions that one of the fears of Newstead joining the band is that it felt like a fanboy was in the band, and they sort of had to beat that out of him. So that's what he's referring to. He says, when James mentioned Rob not reacting the same way as Jason, he says, duh, I thought. When Jason joined, they were super young, and Jason didn't have the major success behind him. When he got the gig, Rob, on the other hand, has had great success in other heavy metal bands, and they were much older and accomplished. I think it would be super odd if Rob acted the way Jason did. It just seemed to be comparing apples to oranges. Not the same situation at all, in my opinion. Ah, that's fair enough. I mean, that's fair. I still think it would have been not super unreasonable for Rob to be excited he was in Metallica. And I'm sure he was. I bet he just played it cool. But you know when they you know they offered him three million bucks and said, hey, you're you're in Metallica now. You're in the biggest band in the world. You know that motherfucker went home and did a private backflip and off the table in his house. But that's a good point, point taken. Of course, Jason being a younger cat and metallic going from playing a club and driving his gear from his in his little pickup truck to hopping on a private plane and playing Budokan in Japan. By the way, how about that connection? Uh, his other point, he says, is when James mentioned they were scared that they had, quote-unquote, married a fan or something, I was wondering if they might have also been scared that Jason, a fanboy, would come to see them for who they really are, just some normal dudes with normal hangups and insecurities like everyone else, and they would be, quote-unquote, found out to be just like everyone else, if that makes sense. It does make sense. He says, for a super fan to get a peek behind the curtain and find out that they're not only the metal gods they seem would be scary, I bet, especially for James. Interesting point. That is a very interesting point. It does seem like, on the one hand, that's reasonable. On the other hand, it does seem like the boys kind of go out of their way to be normal, especially in the early days. They just... They wore this, their street clothes on stage. They would go out in the gig, whoever they were opening for, and watch the show. They invited people over to Carlson. I'm not sure they were that preoccupied with that. I think it really was more of a, uh, can you trust somebody who is a fanboy? You know, can you ever have that honest back and forth, that unity that you need in a band like that? Because when you have a fanboy around, you feel like you've been infiltrated. That, to me, seems like more of the thing uh, that James is talking about. Although, I don't know. I'd love I'd love to have a another talk about it with James and get some clarification on some of that. Uh, he's in his email by saying, Thanks again for the great episodes. Hope you all have some great time away and enjoy yourselves and your families. He says, I'm going on vacation next week with my family as well, a road trip to Florida, and I will be listening to at least a couple of Metal Up Your Podcast episodes. So if you want to shout out to my wife, Sarah, and my kids for putting up with my Metallica addiction, they would love it. Peace and adios, brothers. Angelo, Angelo Gonzalez, Houston, Texas, New Jersey. Well, Sarah and Angelo's children, uh, like many of us husbands and fathers and, and moms and wives out there who share our, our passion and our love, who have to share that with our significant others, we thank you for putting up with it and uh, hope you realize that our love for that band is what makes us the people we are that you hopefully uh, know and trust and love and giving us time to go over into that part of our lives and geek out and listen to those records and interface with that community. It just gives us the sauce and the energy to come back to you, our beloved spouses who put up with us and whom we love so much. So thank you. Eric Schmainda says, Hey, Clint Ethan, which video from the Black Album is your favorite? I can't speak for Ethan, of course, but I'm going to go The Unforgiven. Because it there's, it seems to have had the most TLC in terms of cinematography, the story, the acting. It's creepy. It's scary. Um, it illuminated the meaning of the song more. It's really cool. Really liked it. 
A few more of these, and then we'll move on. Danny Santana. Hey, guys, been a while since I've written in due to some curveballs life's thrown at me. Some good, some bad, but dipping back into Metal Up for the Slayer episode. I've never cared much for Slayer's music, but I've always had respect for Tom Araya. Ethan's mention about Araya's words on God made me remember why. Uh, feels good to be listening to you guys again, and Clint, I hope to run into you at SNM too. I need to get you a beer for keeping me sane during some crazy times. Cheers, as always, from Los Angeles, California, New Jersey. Well, dude, thanks, Danny. I'm sorry to hear about the curveballs, although it sounds like you're doing okay out there. And, uh, man, I would love to have a beer with you. I hope it works out. I'll be letting everybody know what's up with that um, as, as, I, as I learn it, as I, I don't know, you know. Uh, let's see. What else do we got here? Matt Kerr. Hello, Clinton Ethan. Took a while, but I finally made it. I finished all 200-plus episodes and Metal Tales. Wow. Can't thank you enough for providing listeners like me with this journey. I don't have a lot of Metallica friends, and it's been interesting to learn not only what others think about all things Metallica, but also to learn what I think about Metallica. I've reaffirmed some of my old opinions, revised others, developed opinions about things for which I didn't even know I should have an, had an opinion about. I even learned that the Outlaw Torn wasn't on SM. Who knew? <laughs> Any little digs at Ethan I love. <laughs> More importantly, though, I've learned so much more about issues beyond Metallica, what goes into the writing, production, and touring, how musicians earn a living or don't, the pros and cons of streaming, how to listen to music. I revisited artists that had fallen by the wayside for me, like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, and I've learned that Bytor and the Snow Dog is a totally ridiculous song. As a direct result of listening to the podcast, I've bought a pair of studio headphones, I've gone to see Ghost Live, and I deleted my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Holy shit. Leaving behind social media was something I'd been considering, but hearing Clint call it, I think, a cancer made me realize that I was on the right path. That's a pretty good list, don't you think? Well, yes. Um, you're my new guru. He says, before I close, though, I do want to chide both of you for having been too hard on St. Anger. I would give it a solid D-. minus. Seriously, keep up the good work. It does not go unnoticed or unappreciated, Matt. Well, thanks, dude. I'm glad that the... Uh, podcast has inspired you in some of those ways to make some changes in your life and reconsider some of your opinions about Metallica to pick up a Soundgarden record again or an Alice in Chains record that's such a high compliment and uh, I don't take that for granted dude I really appreciate that thanks for taking the time to write in metal up your podcast show at gmail.com we'll read it on something or we'll respond to it personally we read them all uh getting back into the tunes uh, I wrote a song called Japan in My Heart about a girl that was in Japan. And even in the song, I mention a song we're going to play later by Tom Waits called Big in Japan. Now, this was me trying on a little um, The Pretenders, chimey 80s pop rock thing, plus a little bit of Husker Du, punk aesthetic. Um, I don't know. It's fun. This is a fun little rock song. I was going to go hang out with my friend Kevin, who's the drummer in the country band I play in. He's got a studio uh, on the west side of town. And we were just going to go hang out and have some bourbon on a Saturday. And uh, I was just waiting to go over there. Like, we agreed to meet at 11. I'm up at 9 in my studio. And between 9 and the time I had to get in my car to go over there, I wrote this song. So when I got to Kevin's, I said, dude, let's record it. Because, you know, he plays drums and he has a studio up there. So I plugged one of his electric guitars into, like, this amp that was, like, just going straight into his computer. It's like, by all accounts of tone snobbery a very uncool sound just because it was just something for him to track to you know because I was just going to keep the drums and then come back to my studio and redo everything properly with all my nice crap 
Well, I liked the sound of the guitar so much that I kept it. And uh, I just added a few more guitars and an acoustic, some bass, and I sang it. And that became Japan in my heart. It's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. And I will now play it for you here on Metal Every Podcast Radio. And there you have it, Japan in My Heart, a song I wrote, and now you've heard it. And uh, people have asked me before, I've played Japan um, on a radio episode before, and people want copies of that. Uh, if you want that as an MP3, I might just put it out in one of our mailing lists, or just email us at show at gmail.com. I'll send you the demo. That's just a rough demo. Um, moving on to some questions about films and film culture. Because it's different, and it's fun, and films are magic. Cthulhu45 says, which movie do you think does the best job telling the story of the book it's based on, and which movie's the worst? Excellent question. Excellent question. Film adaptations of novels is a huge uh, 
part of film culture. I mean, that's where a lot of stories come from. And uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of varying opinions on this stuff. Now, I could pr probably do an entire podcast about that, but I want to keep it short and tight. So, in my opinion, and I'm going to kind of keep it, uh, I'm going to keep it down to two or three answers for each of these. The best novel adaption that I know of personally is The Green Mile by Stephen King. And I remember reading that book. Um, actually, that book was published in a really weird way. It was initially published in these six little volumes, and you had to just you get those. And then, of course, after that ran its course, they started producing it in a more traditional novel. Um but I remember it being announced as a film and that Tom Hanks was going to play Paul Edgecombe. And I just thought that was so perfect. I mean, he's so wonderful in it. And there's a few things that are different, like super minor. Um, but for the most part, they just sort of took the book material and put it on the screen, which is really rare. It's a really rare thing. And um, I'm such a big Stephen King fan, and so many of his film adaptations are not very good that that one was just a clear home run for me. If you don't like scary stories and stuff, The Green Mile is a great Stephen King book to read because it's not really that scary. It's more of a thriller, and it's a great story. It's heartwarming. and um, Another really good movie was Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I'm a big Thomas Harris fan. Thomas Harris wrote, of course, the all the... He wrote Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Rising, Hannibal, uh, Red Dragon... And he wrote a book before he started the kind of this kind of series called uh, Black Sunday. An amazing writer. Uh, those books are incredible. The book Hannibal is one of my favorite books of all time. And that movie kind of turned turned out shitty, even though that was Ridley Scott who did that too. But Jonathan Demme, who did Sounds of the Lambs, I believe it won an Oscar. Anthony Hopkins won an Oscar. Jodie Foster won an Oscar. Uh, an amazing film. And uh, they did a great job. Another one that you guys probably wouldn't believe it, is Mario Puzo's The Godfather. The book, The Godfather, is basically Godfather 1 and 2, the films. And the book is every bit as exciting as the films. It's just so fun, especially when you've already seen the films and you can see Brando as Vito Corleone and you can see you know, Pacino as Michael and, and James Caan and, and uh, you, know, you can see these people. It's awesome. So I recommend those three books. Uh, the movies were wonderful. The worst ever that comes to mind, keeping it back in Stephen King territory, is The Lawnmower Man, which was a short story from, like, Skeleton Crew or something. And the movie The Lawnmower Man, which they even put on the posters, you know, based on a Stephen King short story, has nothing to do with the short story. In Stephen King's short story, The Lawnmower Man, it's a dude who mows people's lawns, but he eats the grass. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's actually really creepy, really scary. In the movie The Lawnmower Man, Jabe is a you know a mentally handicapped farm worker who is used in these experiments for virtual reality and ends up taking over this VR shit and becoming some sort of computer god and he's diabolical and all this stuff. Horrible. Um, another horrible book adaption is uh, The Dark Tower. Where they had a big budget, did that? Was they get just Elba to be in it? Like, no excuses for how horrible that turned out. And the Dark Tower, for those of you who don't know, is Stephen King's sort of seven-volume magnum. It's his Lord of the Rings. Highly recommend uh, you guys checking that out. It's a real easy start. You start with this book called The Gunslinger, 
then The Drawing of the Three, Wastelands, Wizard and Glass. These are just great books, great stories. Stephen King, obviously a, a master uh, writer, master storyteller. I don't need to tell you guys that. Tambe257 says, I'm a Tarantino fanboy. Same here. He says, in honor of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was fantastic, I agree. Do you have a top five Tarantino films? Sure. Now, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood two times. I saw it in 35mm at the Belcourt Theater here in Nashville. And then I went and saw it again uh, on the road. And, uh, I mean, it's currently my favorite Tarantino movie. Just because it's so fun. He created a world you can really sit in and look. You can just look in the background of that movie. And it's just 1969 Hollywood. Not to mention how likable and watchable Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are. Especially together. Margot Robbie also, not not too shabby to look at, and an amazing actor. Um, you know, you've got the Bruce Dern cameo. You've got all sorts of fun shit in that movie. Everything in the background's real. Everything, all the TV shows they're referencing are real. They have this great scene where they put Leo in The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. It's so crazy. The guy that plays Steve McQueen looks exactly like him. It's so surreal and cool. And the, the 60s Playboy Mansion and... Just all of it, the cars, the television shows. It's a movie about movies. It's just so fun. And Leonardo DiCaprio turns in an amazing performance. Now, I, I, if I divorce myself from just the excitement, and another thing I'll say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it doesn't feel like a Tarantino movie until the end of the third act. And that kind of feels nice. It's not all Tarantino'd out. It feels very mature. Uh, so anyway, if I did have to put a list together though, I mean, cause you can't really mess with Pulp Fiction. How is anything going to unseat Pulp Fiction? So that's going to be number one. Number two is going to be his first film, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, and then I, I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, third, Kill Bill, volume one, fourth, and Jackie Brown, fifth. And I would say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is more closely related to Jackie Brown than any of the other movies. Um, whereas Jackie Brown was kind of more of a 70s, 70s exploitation type thing. This is definitely a, a love letter to late 60s L.A. and to film and TV of that time. So uh, that's how I'd answer that. We'll do one more before we move on to another song. Uh, Anya Wedergren asks, what's your favorite Lynch film and why? Okay, so I had to think about this and I had to parse this out. Uh, not because I don't know my favorite. My favorite's Eraserhead. And that's his first movie. It's 1977. It's black and white. And it's very, very strange. It's one of the strangest movies ever made. And it's not my favorite for that reason. Um, it's just taken on a lot of different meanings for me. I first saw Eraserhead maybe 15 years ago. And it blew my mind then. Uh, I was a lot less... Um, I was a lot more naive and less afraid of things. And so it was just a curiosity to me. And then as I began to get older and life uh, life mows you down a little bit, you see some ugly shit in the world, the movie started to mean something different to me too about that. And then when I had a kid, the movie really started to make sense to me. It's a really Because it's a movie about fatherhood. Uh, this guy, Henry, who works in this industrial sort of no land, no man's land in Pittsburgh, gets this girl pregnant and they have to have this kid together and the kid is basically this a, a monster and there's this like the man from another planet who's pulling all these weird gears there's this chicken that's moving by itself and people behaving very strangely a really haunting strange 
industrial weird soundtrack um really weird songs and music and imagery it's just such a bizarre otherworldly movie that still blows my mind that it even got made so that's why it's number one it's just a it's just a artistic masterpiece and a really unique unrivaled accomplishment and for him to have done it it's his first film it's basically like a college art film it took him a long time to make five six years just every once in a while scrounging the money together to shoot more scenes or build more props build more effects um so that's number one for me tied for number two are blue velvet and mulholland drive there are a lot more straight ahead thrillers um blue velvet more straight ahead than mulholland drive mulholland drive is kind of a psychedelic uh, strange thriller but easier to follow more modern in the third tier, I put Wild at Heart, Straight Story, and Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. Those are all kind of Occupy the same space for me. I love Wild at Heart. I, if you guys haven't seen it, it's Laura Dern and, and uh, Nick Cage, and Willem Dafoe is great in it too. Um, below that, I have Lost Highway, and then lastly, Inland Empire, which I find is completely unwatchable. That was his last movie. Um, there's a really great documentary on Amazon Prime right now called uh, The Art Life, and it's just sort of about David Lynch. It's not really about his movies at all, just him painting, and he's with his daughter, and it's just kind of him being an interesting weirdo. Uh, but if you love his work uh, and his music and his films and his paintings, then uh, you'll like that documentary. So thanks for the questions. We're going to move on now to another tune. Our friend Tom Quee over at Alpha Metallica will dig this. Tom Waits made a record in 1999 called Mule Variations. And it's my favorite Tom Waits record. Um, it's beautiful. It's got some really funky, weird shit on it, too. Uh, you're going to hear that in his song Big in Japan. But I knew I loved this record. I bought it kind of sight unseen in maybe 2003. And uh, just because I was wanting to get into some later Tom Waits stuff. And I remember being on the road in the time of iPods, if you if you babies remember iPods. And uh, I was touring in a van with a guy named Griffin House, and uh, everyone was asleep in the van. It was just me. It was my turn to drive from, like, Boise to Seattle, this long, cold, wintry, shitty drive. And, uh, you know, because so we wouldn't wake anyone up or disturb anyone. Everyone was just kind of in headphones world. So I'm driving, I have my headphones, and I had my entire iPod on shuffle. And I, I had whatever the biggest one at the time was, like a 60 gig or something. This is in 2009. And uh, I just had my whole thing on shuffle. So I was kind of like surprising myself and finding new shit and all that. And there's a song that just came on randomly called Take It With Me, which is a deep cut from this album, Mule Variations. That's one of the most touching, beautiful songs I've ever heard. And uh, I'm not going to play that song for you now because it's not about Japan. But it's on this record with this song, which is called Big in Japan. And we're going to rock it right now. So here's uh, Tom Waits, Big in Japan.
I love that intro and outro. That's obviously some sort of lo-fi, super compressed and smashed loop that he made. Uh, essentially beatboxing, which I never really learned to do. Never had a lot of beatboxing skills. I was never going to be the guy uh, at the center of the crowd of people breakdancing and beatboxing. It was just never going to be my destiny. So be it. So be it. Here we go. We're going to dip back into some emails. Again, Metal Up Your Podcast Show at gmo.com. We love hearing from our listeners and our fans. This is from Dan Stewart, who says, Hey, guys, been listening for a month or two, and like many others, have been swept up as I rapidly catch up on a few years' worth of episodes. Have to admit, my Metallica love had been dormant for a decade. I honestly never recovered after St. Anger, but your passion for the band has swung me right back in. My first memory of Metallica was hearing... No Leaf Clover on the radio in my older brother's Red 82 Chevette when I was in grade 7. Blew my mind. Neither of my older brothers owned Metallica music, but this was around the Napster era, and before long I had plenty of their tunes at my disposal. Because SNM was the primary gateway in me discovering them, I naturally lent towards the load material, and still to this day prefer a lot of the symphony versions, particularly due to their guitar tones mixing over the originals. I have a family to feed and am in grad school studying invasive plants... He says, uh, sardonically, super metal. So I've been slow to the patronage. I just signed up for the Kill 'Em All tier and hope to contribute further down the road. Keep up the great work at building this Metallica community, Dan. Well, Dan, thanks so much, dude. Uh, we really appreciate any and all Patreon support. Whatever anyone can do to uh, show support for the show means a lot to us. And I think studying invasive plants is pretty cool because there used to be a show on uh, who god god knows what network i don't remember this was a long time ago but it was called life after people and it would be like a computer rendering of a major city like chicago a hundred years if there were no people anymore and just the earth and invasive plants reclaiming everything there's a subreddit that i subscribe to called um abandoned porn and no, it's not actual pornography. It just means like creepy abandoned like churches or buildings or like trails or paths. Uh, and many of these pictures that end up on that subreddit are like, you know, an outside an outside uh, synagogue or cathedral completely overtaken by plant life. It's just absolutely being eaten up by the earth. I think that is actually pretty metal. Uh, it's cool that you came online with S&M and with Memory Remains, and I love that era so much. It's well-documented on the show, and like you, I, you know, I prefer some of the string arrangement versions of Master of Puppets and of Battery, and a lot of it for me isn't just the guitar tones and the mixing, but also James's voice. I, just, I, love, I thought his voice sounded really full and strong and mature in that era. It's really cool. Um, Greg writes in, Typical Slayer. Hi, guys. Great episode, as always. For me, it's Typical Slayer. Some great riffs. He's talking about a, our um, our Explore the Big Four episode of the 2015's Repentless by Slayer. He says, Great riffs, but I lose interest halfway through their records. Yes, they have their formula, and it's worked for them through the years. Just too repetitive for me. That's why I love Metallica. Their thrash, their melodic, their groove. Again, to each their own, but Metallica are the king's. And I agree also, go on your vacations, enjoy your time with your family. I, for one, will be here when you get back. Safe travels, M-U-Y-P. Greg, stay so. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate that. Good thoughts on Slayer. I agree with you. One more here. This one's short and sweet. Laura Bolton writes, we end our lives as models. She says, crying with laughter every time. Too funny, guys, Laura. Well, I must give uh, co-write credit to that joke to one Mr. David Mustaine Esquire. Because 
the medieval voice is its own sauce, and it's nice, but we really struck some real serious gold here with the uh, the Dawn Patrol lyric. Waiting for the Dawn Patrol, yes. Mm, pleases me to patrol the Dawn. That's uh, funnier when I have even to bounce it off with me, but uh, I appreciate, Laura, that you find that funny. I know that I sure as hell find it funny, and like most of the bits on Metal Up Your Podcast, uh, we're going to just keep doing them until they cease to be funny to us. And uh, that's it for that segment. Let's listen to some more songs inspired by Japan. Now, how was I ever going to do this radio episode with this premise without playing the vapors turning Japanese? It was inevitable. Free will is an illusion. I was predestined from the dawn of time by the moving cosmos and all the heavenly bodies to play this song for you now on Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. The Vapors, 1980s, turning Japanese. Dig it.
It's interesting that they knew that song was going to be a big hit, and uh, <clears throat> they tried to make it their second single. They had a single out in their 1980 record. Oh, God, what was that record called? Uh, the Vapors, Nuclear Days. And they didn't want to be one-hit wonders. They were afraid of that. And so they tried to make it their second single. It didn't work. Turning Japanese was a huge international hit. They never did it again. As Tom Hanks says in the wonderful film, That Thing You Do, it's a common tale. The one-hit O'Neaters. Uh, speaking of films, we're going to kick it back to the Instagram, because there are more questions. Edgar asks, which movie have you seen the most, and how many times do you think you've seen it? Also name your top three film directors. Uh, wonderful question. Super fun to think about. Um, my top three film directors are Brian De Palma, Billy Wilder, and it's really tough on the third one. Um, you know, I have to go David Lynch, I think, just because the pound for pound, it was really tough not to say Scorsese or Tarantino or, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, there's just so many great directors. Michael Mann. Uh, Scorsese's definitely up there. Woody Allen was for a long time, but I've kind of mellowed on him a little bit. I'm not sure. Uh, his work hit me at a time in my life that was just really, really important. And I went so deep into it. But um, I've been revisiting some of it, and some of it's been holding up, and some of it hasn't. But definitely Brian De Palma. I did an experiment a few years ago where I watched every Brian De Palma film in sequence, which was just a super rewarding project to do. Um, I was getting into Pauline Kael, who's a really famous film critic who was a big De Palma fan, and reading a lot of her work, studying his films. He he uh, is criticized for ripping off Hitchcock, but I never really saw that. Hitchcock's another wonderful film director, favorite of mine. Um, Billy Wilder, of course, did a, a bunch of amazing movies. The Apartment, I just watched some Like It Hot Again the other day. Uh, he just did so much good stuff. Double Indemnity, I, I can't even name it all. I'd be too overwhelmed. Now, in terms of movies that I've watched more than anything, I mean, just because of when I was a kid, you know when you're a kid, you just watch the same movie over and over. So it's almost like the 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 the, the deck is loaded towards when I was a kid and just had a bunch of free time. And that would be stuff like Wayne's World, Coming to America, Nightmare on Elm Street, Pulp Fiction for sure, So I Married an Axe Murderer has got to be up there. These are movies that I've probably watched hundreds of times. Office Space... Uh, so I would, I would put those up there if I, these days as an adult, if I really like a movie, um, I'll see it five to 10 times, you know, I just recently rewatched Blowout, which is, uh, Brian De Palma's 1981 movie with John Travolta. That was maybe my fourth or fifth time because I really like it. Recently watched Some Like It Hot. That was maybe my fourth or fifth time. I've seen Psycho maybe 10 times and I love Psycho. Uh, I've seen the movie Rope, one of Alfred Hitchcock's later films, maybe about five times. So that's kind of uh, just to give you an idea of that. A uh, few more film questions. Wormy Worm, which one of the Indiana Jones films is your favorite? Easily for me, for some reason that I don't understand. It's mysterious to me. It's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, for most people, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I get it. It's the first one they saw. There was nothing like that before it. Uh but I love The Last Crusade with Sean Connery. And uh, 
I love the the whole when they're getting on the plane with the tickets and he throw he throws the guy out the window and he says no ticket. And I love the quest for the Grail and the invisible bridge between the two mountains and I just love all that shit. Just, I watched that movie on repeat when I was a kid. I like all the in the the original three Indiana Jones films, but that's the one that sticks out. Uh, Joey Swords says, "We know you're a horror guy. Does that include horror B movies as well?" The kind that elicit more laughs than they do gasps or cringes. He says, Basket Case is a favorite in my circle of friends. Uh, yeah, man, I, I like campy B-film horror. I don't like it as much as as earnest, creepy movies. Like, I dip into some of the trauma stuff, like the uh, Toxic Avenger stuff. I love, um, like, body horror stuff. There's a couple of really, really fun, really weird movies from the 80s called Body Melt, Street Trash. Um, so the premise of Street Trash is there's like these hobos and winos get into this like old radioactive like booze. And when they drink it, they just immediately melt. And there's just like this weird king of the hobos who, it's just such a, I can't even explain it. It's just a grimy, sleazy New York B-movie. Chud also, the cannibalistic humanoid underworld dwellers. Now, here's a movie that for you, Joey Swords, and anyone who's this conversation in particular is tickling your fancy. A movie came out a couple of years ago that was produced by Elijah Wood, who, Frodo, for those of you who don't know, who is surprisingly a massive horror fan. And it's called The Greasy Strangler. And uh, I'm just going to have to tell you guys to go look it up on IMDb and watch the trailer. And... When you watch the trailer, if you're like me, I saw the trailer and thought, what do I have to do to watch this fucking movie? And I've probably seen The Greasy Strangler maybe four or five times also. It just makes me happy when skies are blue. Again, The Greasy Strangler. Go watch the trailer. Go watch the movie. Write in the Metal Up Your Podcast show at gmail.com and let me know what you thought about and uh, if your loved ones put you in an insane asylum or not. Uh, moving on to more tunes, U2's The Unforgettable Fire. I'm a massive U2 fan, as is, I know, many of our listeners. And uh, this was a song that was inspired by the attacks on Hiroshima. It's a beautiful little nugget on this the titular album that it comes from, The Unforgettable Fire. This would be 85 or 6, and this is sort of right before they blasted off with the Joshua Tree. And it's really a great, it's in between War and the Joshua Tree, and it's, you can really hear both records. You can hear the punk rock dryness of War, but also the, the, the big anthems coming out lyrically. And then you can hear the landscapey, ambient stuff that would become the Joshua Tree, the more thoughtful, uh, police-inspired stuff over there. And it's just a great blend, The Unforgettable Fire. And here, again, here's the title track, and I hope you enjoy it.
that's a pretty intense ending. Um, I do not put that in the chill category. But that's you too, man. You two were not afraid to be intense. There's not a lot of humor in that band, and that's okay. Uh, they just wrote great songs. Really, really powerful shit. Really powerful songs. And uh, that was a great example of that. And I didn't even really connect the dots about that being a Japanese song or a song inspired by Japan. This has been sort of a fun cultural learning experience for me even. All right, let's answer some more questions about films. Uh, Bill V asked, do you think Raging Bull deserves all the accolades it gets? I find it to be a little overrated as a film. I absolutely think Raging Bull's overrated, and uh, I was tickled, plum tickled, one might say, to see that Pauline Kael felt the same way. I mean, I don't need Pauline Kael to agree with me, and I disagree with Pauline Kael a lot. Again, if you don't know who Pauline Kael is, she was easily one of the most famous and uh, admired, respected film critics. She wrote for the New York Times. Her kind of heyday, I think, was 60s through the mid-90s. And she could make or break a film. You know, like, her review could really change the trajectory of of a career. And that's actually what happened with Brian De Palma, is uh, he made some early kind of art film in New York that kind of got panned. I think it was called High Mom. And... Uh, she she positively reviewed it and that kind of turned it around and then she she sort of championed his work throughout the rest of his career um but she gave raging bull a hard time and she's right she, she wrote an article about it uh let me let me look this up because for you to really understand kind of her thoughts about raging bull because she had a really similar review for de niro for uh another scorsese movie um called uh, uh the king of comedy um, De Niro, or I'll just type in Raging Bull. Sorry, I know that's really boring. Raging Bull, okay, Religious Pulp or The Incredible Hulk. And <clears throat> she talks about these two films, and I think part of it, part of what was so such a bummer, I think, for her is how much she loved Mean Streets and loved Taxi Driver. And, you know, she saw so much potential in Scorsese and De Niro together. And I think the starting with 1980, which was Raging Bull, and then kind of going up through King of Comedy, I think she just sort of got disillusioned with it. And she she considers a lot of these performances of De Niro's like super empty. Um, I'll try to find a little excerpt. Uh, she says, what De Niro does in this picture isn't acting exactly. I'm not sure what it is. Though it may at some level be awesome, it definitely isn't pleasurable. De Niro seems to have emptied himself out to become the part he's playing and then not get got enough material to refill himself with. His Lamada is a swollen puppet with only bits and pieces of character inside and some semi-religious, semi-abstract concepts of guilt. He has so little expressive spark that what I found myself thinking about wasn't Lamada or the movie, but the metamorphosis of De Niro. His appearance with his head flattened out and widened by fat is far more shocking than if he were artificially padded. De Niro went from his usual 145 pounds to 160 for the young fighter, then up to 215 for Lamotte's later days. No man's ever made a more dramatic demonstration of the aesthetic reasons that people shouldn't get bloated. And the director Scorsese doesn't show us the trim, fast fighter and then let us adjust to his deterioration. He deliberately confronts us with the gross, older Lamotta right at the start in a flash forward. She's just like a really incisive writer. Uh, I'll read the last paragraph of this review. Again, you can look it up. Uh, by removing the specifics or blurring them, Scorsese doesn't produce universal. He produces banality. 
What we get is full of capitals. A man fights. A man loses everything. A man bangs his head against the wall. Scorsese's putting his unmediated obsessions on the screen, trying to turn raw pulp power into uh, into a, by removing it from the particulars of observation and narrative. He loses the low-life entertainment values of prizefight films. He aestheticizes pulp and kills it. Raging Bull is tabloid grand opera. Jake is the brute life force, and the picture ends as he experiences a surge of energy. It's a Fellini-esque ending. Life goes on. The picture is overripe, ready for canonization. An end title supplies a handy biblical quote. So she kind of got a sense that it was going to be really celebrated, but she really didn't like it. And I agree. I, I found it really hard to watch. It's a really painful movie. Joe Pesci is wonderful in it, though. Uh, all right, we got another question here. Aurelian Moreau, what's your appreciation of the Twin Peaks movie Firewalk With Me? It was despised when it came out by critics and Twin Peaks fans, but I think that it's a really good movie, and it looks like it gets more love as the years passed on. And by the way, I hope you will visit Kyoto. It's a fabulous city. We will be visiting Kyoto. We're doing... Uh, Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, and I think two more cities I'm not familiar with, and uh, I can't wait to, I can't wait to report back on some of that. Uh, I love Firewalk with me. I love the Twin Peaks universe so much. It's one of my favorite universes of all time, and any continuation of that story or a sort of supplement to that story is fine with me. Now, I didn't get into Twin Peaks when it was happening, when it was current. I wasn't really a Lynch fan. I didn't really know anything about any of that shit in the early 90s. This all began happening to me with David Lynch's work around 10 years ago. So um, I loved it. I thought Firewalk With Me was awesome. I just bought the Criterion Collection edition because uh, in um, the last month, they were doing a big 50% off sale. So I bought a bunch of cool shit. I got Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick. I got Solaris, Andre uh, Tarkovsky. Uh, stuff i got uh some like it hot billy wilder what else did i get i got blue velvet eraserhead animal holland drive firewalk with me i got all the david lynch stuff i could that they have available um i got on the waterfront the wonderful brando film won like nine oscars blowout i got the criterion collection anyway if you're a film lover it's like this really high transfer quality uh blu-rays and then a bunch of awesome uh, bonus content like the Some Like It Hot bonus content was like an hour-long Dick Cavett interview with Billy Wilder, uh, a Marilyn Monroe interview, a big, long, hour-long interview with Tony Curtis, a big, long interview with Jack Lemmon, uh, subtitles, commentaries, booklets, reviews. It's just Criterion Collection stuff is so dope. So um, <clears throat> I love Firewalk With Me. No problem whatsoever. Let's listen to another tune. I'm tired of talking. I need to take a sip of water. And we got a few more here. Now, people do not like Coldplay anymore, yet somehow they sell out arenas and stadiums all over the world, and they're one of the most popular bands in the world. Uh, but at some point, it became very uncool to like Coldplay. I am proud to say I never bought into it. I never didn't like them. I never got tired of them. They've always been A-OK -okay in my book. This is an album that came out, uh, I don't remember what year this is. This is Viva La Vida, and uh, it was exciting because Brian Eno produced it. This is their fourth record, and uh, Brian Eno, of course, famous for doing lots of great shit, but most notably The Unforgettable Fire, which we've already heard, and uh, Joshua Tree. So this is a song called Lovers in Japan, and I'll send this one out to my beautiful wife, who I can't wait to go uh, hang out in uh, Tokyo with. Check it out, Coldplay, Lovers in Japan.
All right, that was Lovers in Japan by Coldplay. Fun song, beautiful song, romantic song, touching song. <sighs> I'm in Japan right now, by the way. I hope I'm having a good time. My wife informed me that we should go <clears throat> buy summery clothes, uh, to which I said, what is it? What did that mean? I was like, I have a million t-shirts. And she said, well, it's just going to be hot. We're going to be outside a lot. Maybe we should get some shorts. And <clears throat> I don't know, dudes. I'm not really rocking shorts a lot these days. No one wants to see it. I don't want to wear them. But uh, I think we're going to be going shorts shopping. Which, by the way, I know I'm jumping timelines here. I am in Japan currently. I'm in Japan climbing Mount Fuji wearing some goddamn shorts. Feeling pretty good about it. All right, we've got a few more questions here about films. These have been a lot of fun. Graham Stark says, have you ever seen the movie Sunset Boulevard? Did you know Memory Memory Remains is heavily based on it? I did know that. Um... And like I said before, a huge Billy Wilder fan. So Sunset Boulevard, of course, one of his masterpieces. And uh, even his like more unheard of stuff, like Irma Deleuze, Irma LaDuce, even his more obscure stuff, like Irma LaDuce and uh, Buddy Buddy, The Fortune Cookie, Ace in the Hole. He just made some great movies. And what's so cool about Billy Wilder is uh, he wrote a lot of it. He's kind of a Woody Allen, Quentin Tarantino type writer, producer, director. <clears throat> a real tour de force uh, in in the cinema world. So yeah, so Graham goes on to say, I cannot recommend HBO's Chernobyl highly enough. If you haven't seen it, the cinematography, acting, directing, storytelling from a human and science point of view is fascinating. He says, best TV slash miniseries event in the last 10 years. Wow. There's also an official podcast that talks about each episode. Maybe the show is on the plane to Japan. Enjoy your trip. Uh, and then uh, Valeria Zane chimed in and says i agree about chernobyl it was phenomenal my wife watched it and absolutely loved it i'm having a hard time mustering up any um inspirato to check it out because it looks so depressing and bleak and i just have so many <clears throat> things i have so many movies on lists various you know i'm on this thing called icheckmovies.com where you keep up with all the movies you watch if any of you guys are on there you can look me up it's kind of like discogs but for films and then I have my IMDb watch list. I've got my Criterion Collection has a subscription channel that you can also check out. I think it's 10 bucks a month. And I have a watch list on there. Uh, we have Hulu and Amazon Prime. We have Stars and we have HBO. So I have I have cues uh, and all that stuff. And we have Shudder, which is like horror movies, Netflix for horror films. And we have Netflix. Good God. So <clears throat> um, best TV series in the last 10 years that's pretty tough dude because there's been some good stuff uh breaking bad comes to mind and uh i thought the show the deuce was awesome on hbo uh james franco it's about the porn industry in new york in the 70s i thought the deuce was really really good uh the show barry on hbo with bill Hader was really good there's a lot of great shows out there um there's a show on Netflix. It's not really that great, but it's fun to watch called Mindhunter. My wife and I like that. It's about this FBI agent who investigates serial killers. And season one was all about Ed Kemper, and I'm very fascinated with Ed Kemper. Season two is about to come out, so I'm excited about that. All right, let's uh, let's do some more questions here. Uh, Valeria says, The Japanese music fan scene is particularly interesting. They really get into the music they love. There have been fan moments in Japan that resemble Beatlemania, Beatlemania like when bands like The Runaways and Cheap Trick played there for the first time. A film about that, about that would be something. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I would watch that film. 
Coco Brazier says, what are your thoughts on the way people generally review movies? To me, assigning ratings out of 10 doesn't really work because each film, for the most part, is trying to say its own thing, and we lose a lot of appreciation for movies when we compare them to other works. Well, that's a pretty good point. I think that's fair. Um, I think it's also like that's just how human beings orient things. And I think when you, I think if you are going to use that system, what do you give it out of 10? How does it compare to another movie? I think if you're like taking all of that literally, then you're missing the point of that. What it's supposed to do is gauge a general feeling about it. But you're, of course, going to have to come to your own conclusions. You know, it's like the question I was asked before about movies that critics loved that I didn't like and movies that uh, the critics hated that I thought were pretty good. Like you have to have your own thoughts. You have to think for yourself. But I find that in general, ratings are are kind of are pretty helpful. There's some outliers out there. I remember when a movie's so bad, it's fun. And, you know, once you wade through a bunch of those, you start to get a, a feel for the landscape. I will say horror movies get a bad rap because they're not really taken very seriously. So really good horror movies might still have bad ratings. It's really in the last five to ten years where this sort of art house horror thing has been happening. I think it's really good. But movies like The Babadook and It Follows... Of course, The Witch and Midsummer, Hereditary. Um, <clears throat> I could probably name 30 of those if I really thought about it. But horror movies are being taken more seriously. Now, of course, The Exorcist won an Oscar. Silence of the Lambs won several Oscars. There have been moments in history, Rosemary's Baby comes to mind, where horror movies were taken really seriously and treated like cinema, the cinema that it is. But for the most part, people sort of look down on it, and uh, you can't judge normal Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb ratings when you're scoping out a horror film. But <clears throat> I read several horror websites, and I subscribe to a couple of horror subreddits. So I've always got my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the horror community. So I usually have movies of the year that I want to see. I mean, all the film festival movies that are happening this year that will all kind of get wide releases next year, they're already on lists for me. They're already on my radar. Uh, you just have to do a little bit more digging. But uh, <clears throat> I think if you have a sound mind and you know what you like in movies, I think you just need to trust your gut, trust your intuition. Use, the, use ratings uh, just as very loose gauges of what to look for. Uh, and having said that, let's listen to another song. What do we have left here? What's left... In the radio episode, I've, I've put all these together. I think we're going to rock some Bee Gees, uh, Tokyo Nights. And the Bee Gees are surprising because, first of all, we all know their hits, but their hits are super fun. It's like staying, al- staying alive, it comes on the radio, you're going to turn it up, mostly. It's like Dancing Queen by ABBA. It's just so good, right? No? <laughs> uh, this is an interesting record, though, because it's, let's see, it's 1989 on an album called One. It's their 18th studio album. And this was a deep cut. It wasn't a big hit. This record wasn't a big hit. But um, it came to mind when I thought about Tokyo and Japan-themed songs. So let's check out some Bee Gees with some Tokyo Nights, my babies. Thank you. 
Love that chorus. Take me to Tokyo. That might be a cool song to cover. You take all the 80s kind of schlocky, synthy shit out. It's actually a really cool song. Very uh, achy. Take me to Tokyo. All right, a few more questions before we wrap up this. Japanese and film culture-themed Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. The Hub Schrauber, uh, if I'm saying that right. Says if you watched the biopic on Ian Curtis of Joy Division called Control, one of the greatest biopics done by Anton Korbjgen for a Metallica reference, and have a great trip. Thank you. I've not seen that. <clears throat> I don't know much about Joy Division. So in order to want to watch an entire biopic about it, I would need to have heard some of the songs and, and like them. I know that one of my favorite 90s bands is a band called Live, and I know that they were big Joy Division people. And psychedelic furs and some of that stuff. So I need to check it out. JSB22 says, What do you think of the whole concept of the Japanese band Baby Metal being a manufactured metal band that puts out some pretty intense music with an impressive live show? It's certainly different. I've literally never seen any of the Baby Metal stuff. So I can't really comment on it. I don't really know what it is. <clears throat> uh, but it... A manufactured band, I don't have a problem with that. A lot of great bands were manufactured or put together by business people because they thought it'd be a good idea. And uh, I don't know. It sounds weird. It sounds like some weird Japanese thing. Uh, last question over here on Instagram. What's your favorite musical from Johannes? My favorite musical is Brian De Palma's 1974 masterpiece, The Phantom of the Paradise. <clears throat> In which uh, what's the story is so crazy. William Finley plays what would end up becoming the Phantom. There's this crazy villain guy uh, played by Paul Williams, who actually wrote all the songs in the musical, and he's running this th this this venue called the Paradise, and he steals this guy's songs, and he steals his chick, and <clears throat> his face gets burned, like melted with like this melted vinyl, and he becomes the Phantom, and he's like haunting this uh music venue good god it does not sound good but i'm telling you it's super fucking awesome it's very de palma it's very cool he wrote it william finley's great in it and i just absolutely love the songs i just love the music so much uh hedwig and the angry inch is fun i'd put that up there um but i don't know much about musicals and i haven't seen many of them so that's coming from a very limited experience. So that's it for Instagram. We're going to kick it on over to the Twitterverse and uh, answer a few questions over there. Uh, by the way, go follow us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that crap. And uh, we like to interact over here with stuff. So I'm trying to find this because I'm sliding into our mentions here. Uh, Ralph asks, are you any future touring plans with Rodney? Also, are you still thinking about attending SNM too? If so, at night. Yeah, I'm still thinking about attending SNM too. It's going to be the eighth because I have a gig on the seventh. So it's a matter of me trying to figure out how to get from Raleigh, North Carolina to San Francisco, a place to stay, just working out the logistics. And then I want to stay in San Francisco on the ninth, which is my 36th birthday. And then I want to go to see Dave Matthews Band on the tenth. So it's just a matter of logistics, trying to figure all that out. It's going to be hard to thread that needle. And then, yeah, touring with Rodney, yeah, he, they're having a baby uh, this month, and then we're, we're going to be back to our normal, you know, shows every weekend stuff. So if you want to 
investigate any Rodney shows. I love meeting uh, listeners out there. I always get them tickets. They always come on the bus, and we always have a good time. Uh, Nick Makoviak, our buddy who did the uh, artwork for Cover Over Black and 1 and 2, he says, I'm a massive Godzilla fan. What's your general opinion on the franchise, and have you seen the original 1954 film? I've seen the 54 film, but not recently. And in the last 10, 15 years of me getting really into cinema, I haven't really gone back and revisited a lot of the old monsters. Um, <clears throat> I did like Nosferatu, and I did maybe like one of the Dracula films, but the Universal Monsters stuff, I'm just not that interested in. I'm not really interested in Godzilla. I'm not really interested in um, really any of that stuff. And uh, so I need to I need to make some time for it because it's cool and it's really important historically. And uh, I know that they've just made a shit ton of them, too. So, Nick, you'll have to curate for me in the Godzilla franchise, like sort of where to start, what to avoid. And uh, it'd be fun to kind of dive back into that. I think that might be the end of the questions over there. Yep, that's it. So <clears throat> I'm going to play one last song. How could I do this this uh, episode without playing a little woman from Tokyo? By Deep Purple. Uh, We've all known this song, right? It's a pretty famous Japanese song. 1973's Who Do We Think We Are. And uh, let's listen to this. I'll come back and say bye at the end. Here we go. Deep Purple, Woman from Tokyo. A lot of fun.
that's going to wrap up this very special japan edition of metal up your podcast radio thanks to everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed the ride i hope you maybe learned of some new tunes you might be interested in and i hope maybe you got excited about checking out some films whatever the directors or the genres or films that we were mentioning uh in this episode i think that movies like music are magic they take you to another world they help you learn about other people that aren't like you and uh, they're transformative and otherworldly and that's why we still love them. That's why it's still an important art form and an important medium. And uh, thanks for being patient with us on our various vacations. We'll be back uh, at the end of the month to kick ass for you guys. And then the fall is going to be really fun for the show. Go check out the Patreon. Go leave us a positive review. You can write in metalupyourpodcastshow at gmail.com and let us know what you think. And uh, as usual, I'm grateful for all of you out there. I love the Metal Up Your Podcast family. And uh, we'll see you on the flip-flop. I got to.